Good morning, Hope Astoria. I am just beside myself. I can't believe that this is the third week in a row that I have not been able to be with my beloved church family. Um, first off, I want to thank uh, just everyone's graciousness, their prayers, their love, their support. It has meant the world to me and my family as uh, we've just been having quite the time as uh, COVID spread from my 12-year-old daughter to my six-year-old son, then my nine-year-old son, then my wife, then my one-year-old. Um, I continue to test negative, thankfully, which has meant that I've been able to take care of my family during this time and not uh, be a potential threat or in, uh, bring any possible harm to others outside of my family, but it has been very tiring, very exhausting. Um, and I just want to say thank you for your prayers because we have certainly felt them. Uh, there's no way to survive, uh, endure something like this without prayer undergirding. And so just thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your graciousness. And I'm really bummed to miss uh, today of all Sundays when the iconic New York institution, Mr. Softy, is uh, coming to hang out with us. And so I hope you have a blast today. I hope you enjoy some ice cream and get to uh, see faces you love, meet new faces. Um, just so grateful for our church family. And by God's grace, I am looking forward to being together, uh, being with you the following Sunday. And so love you. Thank you for your graciousness. Also, uh, I'm so grateful for Pastor Denise and our staff and just so many just that put blood, sweat, and tears to just continue to move our church forward. And so today, please, as you see them, thank them. Uh, just encourage them. They mean the world to our church. They mean the world to me, and they make so much possible, and I'm so grateful for them. And so with that, I want to dive in and continue where we left off. Uh, last week, we have been in a sermon series called Authentic Faith, and we've been studying the book of James. And we're going to continue where we last left off. I'm going to go straight to scripture. I have so much I want to share with you this morning. And I'm going to begin reading from James chapter 2, verse 14 till 26. Look at what it says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. 
In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would meet us as we study your word, as we gather in your name under your lordship to encounter you, to know you, to follow you. Holy Spirit, would you fill our hearts, fill the very room that we're in, every crevice, every corner, every inch, saturate this environment, this place with your presence. We ask that you would glorify Jesus, reveal him to each and every one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the other day I walked in, uh, you know, we've been in this very, very strange quarantine experience now. By the time it's over, it'll be a little over 20 days that we have been locked down as a family. Um, it, it's been quite the strange experience. It feels like it's March 2020 all over again. Um, walked in and my sons were having quite the heated debate. Uh, my nine-year-old son, Luke, six-year-old son, Michael. Michael was going in. He was arguing what he felt was forceful, clear logic. He said, Luke, how could the world be round? If it was round, the oceans would spill over. They would just, it just doesn't make sense. At that moment, I felt like I failed my son. <laughs> uh, you know, he's six years old. I was like, man, by now he should know that it's pretty established. The world is not flat. I was like, is he hanging out with like Kyrie Irving? If you don't know that reference, look it up. You'll say, oh, that was funny, Pastor Chris. I, I, it was weird. And then, um, so Luke fires back and said, Michael, gravity. He starts, <laughs> he starts screaming, gravity. At his point, he says, you talk about gravity all the time. Gravity. And, and they were at this war and it was, it was entertaining, but more than entertaining, I realized that they were in this kind of like gotcha argument moment where they were trying to disprove the other with the force of their logic. And in many respects, these verses that we just read feel like this gotcha moment from James because he's calling people out very powerfully. His logic is strong and clear and it's really irrefutable you can't really push back even though I can tell you as I've studied this passage countless commentaries and theologians volumes have been written about these verses because if you are aware of it or even if you're not I need you to be uh, to, to know this that these verses for many raise the question of is this a contradiction is James arguing for something, making a point that presents a major contradiction in Scripture? Now, if that's the case, you have to realize how earth-shattering it is because we, as people that follow Jesus and, and follow the Scriptures and follow God from the Scriptures, we hold that the Scriptures don't contradict each other. That though at, at Grace value, sometimes there may be some portions of scripture that kind of challenge the other, but as you study, as you go deep in, you realize that actually there's a synthesis, that they don't contradict each other, they add to each other. 
uh, and, and, and Scripture interprets Scripture. And as you spend time, immerse yourself in God's Word, you see the clearer narrative, the thread that runs through. But at this moment, James is saying something that presents a major contradiction to one of the most established, clear, powerful doctrines in Scripture. And that is the doctrine of grace through faith. The scriptures say that our relationship with God is by grace and it's through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, one of the most seminal verses that argues this point. In fact, this verse and verses like this were at the heart of what caused an awakening in the reformer Martin Luther, where at a time in church history, the church had veered so far off from the scriptures that they were actually selling what was known as indulgences. That people were basically able to buy these indulgences as a way to pay for their entrance into heaven. So it didn't matter how you lived, what you believed, whether you were practicing or not. If you bought indulgences from the church, the church was selling these indulgences totally heretical, abhorrent, unbelievable that this is actually part of church history. But this was happening at the time of Martin Luther and they were saying that, no, you don't have to believe in the sacrifice of Jesus and his atoning love for us. Actually, all you have to do is purchase this thing called an indulgence and your entry into heaven is secure. During that time, Martin Luther discovers these verses and verses like this and has this unbelievable awakening that's known historically as the Reformation. Because he awakens to the reality that, no, the idea that we could buy our way into heaven, that we could earn, that we could purchase our seat at God's table is absolutely contradictory to Scripture. And he begins to unearth what was in Scripture all along but was being ignored. And that was the doctrine of grace through faith. And as he preached this, it spread like wildfire. All of a sudden, people began to recover this important grounding doctrine of Scripture. And we continue to live out, we at Hope Astoria and churches all over the world since then continue to herald and extol this doctrine, this truth that you and I are saved by grace through faith. That every human being that has a relationship with God, that calls Jesus their Lord, what brings them into that relationship with Him is grace. Now, grace means unmerited favor, undeserved favor. And so when we say we have a relationship with God by grace, we are declaring something quite powerful. We're saying that I don't deserve this relationship with God. That actually the only reason I'm in this relationship with God is because He graciously invites me into it, allows me into it, and I access that grace by faith. So salvation is a gift that is received, not earned. And this gift is received by faith. I remember in the reading about in the 20s and 30s that there were gatherings of Christians that this was before uh, kind of bands and worship teams as we know it. Oftentimes there was just one person standing in front holding a hymnal and leading entire congregations in song. And sometimes out of the congregation, songs would kind of just sweep through the room. I remember hearing about this one gathering where powerful things occurred. The Holy Spirit just did amazing miracles and God really, really was present. And it was during the time as the people began to sing this very basic song, 
trust in Jesus, only believe, trust in Jesus, only believe. The simplicity of that is rooted bedrock in Scripture. That you and I are saved by grace through faith. And in fact, even though James argues and he uses Abraham and Rahab, biblical heroes, as examples to make his case about faith without deeds is dead, actually Abraham and Rahab in Hebrews the 11th chapter are heralded just for their faith. Not arguing about their faith and their deeds, just simply because they believe in God. If you haven't spent time in Hebrews the 11th chapter, it's called the, the where the heroes of the faith, the, the, the hallmark of faith. You hear their great exploits and all the things that these men and women of God did throughout Scripture, all because they trusted and they believed God by faith. But James is arguing against that. As we, as we hear these words, it's jarring. There's a reason why there's been so much written about these verses. And in fact, Martin Luther, who I referred to earlier, he wrestled with these verses so much that it's said that he actually didn't want the book of James to be included in the New Testament because this challenged so much of his awakening about grace. Why is that? Because we see that James is saying something quite powerful. He's saying that faith without deeds accompanying it is dead faith. See, we need to pause and hear what James is saying, what he's arguing, consider it. Because what he's saying is that faith alone is not enough. Faith without deeds to accompany it is dead. And then he says, quite boldly, he says that this kind of faith, without deeds, won't save a person. That's what has all these theologians and all these commentaries up in arms, because it's one thing to argue faith without deeds is dead. I think most folks wouldn't disagree with that. But when he says faith without deeds is dead and that kind of faith won't save a person, it challenges the notion, the idea that all you need to do is to have faith, that faith alone saves you, that it's only by grace that you're saved, that you don't have to do anything. James is saying, faith that doesn't have deeds is dead, and that kind of faith won't save a person. And that's where the tension lies. Because when you look at the argument he's making, it makes total sense. The examples he poses, how can we argue with them? He says, if someone poor, who's hungry and cold, comes to our gathering and we say, go and be fed and be warm, kind of like a statement of faith, but then we do nothing to address the person's hunger and their cold, that we don't help them to get warm, so that's useless. It's it's. Who could argue with the logic of that? James is, it, there's a reason why this, there's so much tension around what he's saying because it challenges so much of what we've come to believe about faith alone saves us. James is saying 
People that say that they have faith alone and faith that doesn't have deeds, that kind of faith won't save them. And so his examples of having faith without deeds, with, re with respect to responding to the needs of the poor, these are airtight examples where, where we wouldn't argue with it. And one of the things that James is touching on, he's touching on hypocrisy. He's touching upon the reality that faith, when it doesn't have deeds that accompany it, becomes insincere. It isn't authentic faith. It isn't the faith that we're called to have. And many thinkers have argued that probably the greatest thing that has been an obstacle, a hindrance to the Christian faith spreading as it should for people to really see the glorious good news of Jesus is not the doctrine of Scripture, it's not the person of Jesus, because how could we not love someone like Jesus and want to follow him? Actually, the greatest hindrance to the church proclaiming the gospel is not our doctrine, it's our hypocrisy. When we profess something in faith that doesn't line up with our actions. James is addressing this and he's saying that kind of faith is dead, it's useless, and it won't save you. So at the moment, you understand why there's reason to be concerned, why people are concerned, why these verses have caused quite a bit of controversy over the, the centuries of the church. And even now, people continue to wrestle with these verses and what do, what do they mean. But actually, what James is saying, though on the surface looks like a contradiction, it actually isn't a contradiction. What he's saying helps us to certify our faith. I don't know if you have ever been the victim of a fraudulent call, someone calling you and trying to um, lie to you, deceive you, all to try to get your money. Uh, recently it happened to me, um, and this, was, this isn't in my notes, but let me use this as an opportunity to set the record straight. Someone actually hacked my email and uh, they created an email account that looked just like mine. They, had a, they took a picture of me from our church website, put it in the email. It wasn't actually my email if you clicked on it, it was a different email. And they began to email people and some of those emails were people in our church. And the email was something like, hey, I have a huge favor to ask you, um, uh, please contact me. And when people responded, the, the fraud the fraudulent person began to ask if, if people would buy gift cards, all to try to extract money, swindle people. Horrible that this is actually a reality in our lives. Let me just say, for the record, I would never ask anyone to give money. I, I don't. You, you, you hear me talk about money like once a year in church on Sunday, and it's for extending hope. It's when we're trying to raise money for, not our church, it's actually trying to raise money for, that goes completely out the door. And so know that um, I don't ask for money over email. Um, it, it, we only talk about it like literally like once a year in our church. Um, but why I reference that is because just an example of in our day and age, there's so much fraud, so much lying. And wouldn't it be great if we just had the ability always to certify, to verify if something is real, if something is authentic. One of the great challenges in our day and age is that it's so easy to 
fake stuff, to be an imposter, to lie. But what James gives us in these verses, rather than a contradiction to the established doctrine of us being saved by grace alone through faith, that all we have to do is trust in Jesus, that we don't add anything to our salvation through our works. We're not performing and trying to earn God's love and our favor. No, it's all done by grace through faith. He's not trying to contradict that. Actually, he's adding value to that established doctrine by giving us a means by which we can verify if our faith is authentic. See, what James gives us is a means to assess, to self-reflect, to verify if the faith that we have is actually saving faith. Because what James says is that faith without deeds is dead. And so faith has to be accompanied by deeds in order to be faith that's considered alive. But notice what he doesn't say. James never says that the deeds save us. He never said, have deeds, and if you perform good deeds, those good deeds are what saves you. What he's trying to argue against and, and kind of plug holes in the myth that you and I could just simply believe in Jesus without accompanying deeds to that faith. That's what James is arguing against. See, what he's trying to say is that the evidence that you and I believe that Jesus alone saves us, the evidence that you and I are truly standing on grace alone is that, and the evidence that our works and deeds don't save us, that we believe that actually is to have deeds accompany our faith. What he's trying to give us is this means to verify, do we have saving faith active in our lives or not? And what he's saying is, deeds don't save you, but the faith that does save you, if it doesn't have deeds to accompany it, then actually we still don't yet possess the faith that saves us. See, deeds that accompany our faith help us to verify if we have faith at all. So James isn't contradicting this established doctrine. He's adding a means to verify if we truly are standing on this truth. If you believe that you're saved by grace alone through faith, James is saying the evidence that you believe that is that there's actually deeds that accompany your faith. He's not arguing that your deeds save you. But he's saying if you have faith that saves you, <coughs> you'll know that because there will be deeds that will accompany that faith. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's pause for a moment as we recognize that James isn't contradicting this established doctrine. In fact, he's adding to it. And let's just pause for a moment and relish in that established truth of Scripture that actually has changed everything. And that is that good deeds don't save us. I can't think of better news, of something that should provide more relief to you and I than that truth from Scripture that your good deeds and my good deeds don't save us. Now, friends, uh, and I'm sure many of you do as well, that invest in the stock market. 
And I have seen some of them, some of them are not believers in Jesus. I've seen some of them that their moods change quite a bit depending on which way the market is going. And so if the market is going up and they're accruing more money and, and dividends are rising, they're pretty happy. But if things happen where the market begins to crash, oh, I can tell that their mood is being affected by it. In fact, for some of these friends, I, I don't even have to know the news that something happened bad in the market. I just have to be around them and if I sense a bad mood, then I could probably deduce maybe something happened in the market. So pegged are some people's identity to things such as money and wealth. But as I've seen that experience of someone's well-being and just general enjoyment of life go up and down depending on the rise and fall of the stock market, I realize that for us there's a spiritual parallel in that if you and I don't believe that we're saved by grace alone, if we actually believe what James is not saying, that we're saved by deeds, then that is actually a painfully horrifying way to try to relate to God because what it sets us up is for that kind of similar up and down roller coaster experience that some of, our, some of my friends that invest so heavily in the stock market have where when things are going up, they feel great. If we believe that we're saved by deeds, that we have to earn this, then when we're praying, when we're loving, when we're serving, then we feel good. We feel like, like things are good. We feel as if we're earning our way. Why wouldn't God love us? Because aren't we so well behaved? But when we struggle, and we all struggle, when we fall short, when we don't meet the standard, at that moment, we become despondent. So if we, if we actually believe that we relate to God based on our performance and God loves us based on our deeds, then we are on this constant roller coaster ride of either we are doing good and we're tempted toward pride or we're doing poorly and we're tempted to despair because it's this up and down experience. But thanks be to God that our relationship with him is not dependent on our deeds to sustain it. And that's an amazing, liberating thing, especially for any of us right now that you may have walked into this gathering and you walked in with a heaviness because you're in a season where you don't feel like you're meeting up to God's standards. You don't feel worthy. You don't feel like you're praying enough or serving enough or giving enough or loving enough and, and, and you feel inadequate. It's an, an important reminder that Jesus wants to declare into your soul you don't earn his love. You don't have to perform. It's never been based on that. But the good news for any of us that are walking in, we're feeling kind of good. We're feeling like, man, I've been really diligent in my prayer and my study of scripture. I've been kind. I've been, I've been doing everything that I know to do. It's good news for us that that performance trap can stop. That we can get out of that hamster wheel and receive a love that we could never earn, will never deserve, that it's a free gift. And on my own journey, I've shared this in other settings, it, it, one of the greatest struggles I ever had was understanding the grace of God, because for me, that was a very foreign concept, to be loved regardless of my performance. 
No other love I've ever experienced was like that. Everyone I met throughout my whole lifetime loved me if I did what they wanted me to do and didn't love me if I didn't do what they wanted me to do. Every single relationship to receive love was performance-based. And now when I meet Jesus and I'm told that my relationship with him is based on grace, I rejected that for so long. I wanted my relationship with God to be based on my performance, on how prayerful I was, how much I was fasting, how much I was preaching the gospel. That felt right. That felt like something I could wrap my mind around. And what I realized now after many years of processing that and really coming to God, ultimately why I wanted God to relate to me based on my performance is because I didn't feel like I deserved his love and I struggled with that premise. Because I wanted to be loved, but it felt safer to have someone love me if I'd earned that love. Because then I could kind of exact it, demand it. I merited it. I earned it. But God blew those categories completely out of the water as he began to apply his grace more and more and more to my life. And even to this day, it continues to just move me. It continues to just bring me to my knees that at my worst moments, hearing the Spirit of God say, you have nothing to prove. This is not based on your performance. I love you regardless. And in my best moments, remembering God doesn't love me more now. Maybe you could relate. Maybe you could relate to that seesaw experience of trying to earn God's love and feeling like he loves you more. Certain No, grace obliterates that. That's an established doctrine. And James isn't contradicting that. He's adding a layer to it. Saying that kind of grace, that kind of faith in God's grace actually needs some friends. Would you say that with me? My faith needs some friends. Your faith, my faith, needs some friends. The friends that our faith needs is deeds. And loneliness is a real problem in our society. Even though we're more connected to each other, have means to connect with each other that uh, previous generations would have never dreamed of, yet the rise of the sense of debilitating loneliness in our society, in Western society, is quite alarming. We were made to be in community. And when we're alone and we're in, in an intense state of loneliness, we don't function. Very similarly, our faith was made to be accompanied by deeds. Faith alone saves us, but faith without deeds is not saving faith. Our faith needs some friends. And for many of us, if we're honest, the problem is that our faith is lonely. Our faith doesn't have deeds to accompany it. See, in our day and age, there are people who believe that Jesus alone saves them, but they don't have the deeds of actually developing community with other believers to accompany that faith. There are people who believe that Jesus saves them and his love saves them alone and yet don't have the deeds of love towards people who disagree with them politically. They have faith, but they
but their faith is lonely because their faith doesn't have the deeds to accompany their faith. And what's interesting is that this letter, as if you've been trekking with us, you know that the context of this letter is that James is writing to followers of Jesus, Jewish followers of Jesus, who for the sake of their faith, their lives have been disrupted. They've lost home and family. Many of them are on the run, uh, uprooting their lives in order to survive a wave of persecution simply because they believed in Jesus. Their lives are on the line. And to them, James is reminding them, faith without deeds is dead. I find that interesting, that he would feel the need, the necessity, the urgency to remind people who clearly had faith because they were being persecuted because of their faith, to remind them, your faith is actually dead and useless even if it doesn't have deeds to accompany it. As I began to reflect on that and began to think about our lives especially over the last 18 months, what I realize is that there's a thread that connects us with the original audience that James was writing to and us in that, like them, James is reminding them faith without deeds is useless during a time of suffering because it's in moments of suffering that we're more tempted to abandon the deeds that should accompany our faith. It's during moments of suffering that we get tempted to privatize our faith and make it this private, secretive thing that just exists in our hearts and divorce it from deeds that should accompany it. And I've seen over the last 18 months that happen in many ways to so many of us. Where if we examine our faith, for many of us, our faith has been stripped of vital deeds that should accompany it. On, on a positive note, I've seen that during the last 18 months, one of the things that I feel very energized about for our church and many churches is that our faith deeds were added to our faith and that for the first time in a long time in our lifetime, seeing that for many professing Christians, they realize that faith in Jesus alone without deeds around justice and raising our voice for the marginalized and those that need advocacy is not faith that we would consider saving faith. Now to raise our voice for the poor, the marginalized, that doesn't save us. It's only what Jesus has done alone that saves us. But if we believe that Jesus alone saves us and we don't add the deeds of advocating and raising our voice for the marginalized, then we have to question our faith. Is it dead, as James says? And so this past 18 months, I've seen in, in some respects deeds being added to our faith for the first time in my lifetime. I feel like when the church in our day and age is preaching the gospel, the gospel sounds more good than it ever has because it's not just good news about Jesus saving eternal souls, but it's good news about Jesus rescuing the marginalized, the poor, the vulnerable. Deeds have been added. But also during this season, deeds have been taken away from our faith. The current reality is that so many people have lost the deed of fellowshipping, of connecting with the church during this season. And I get it. It has been so disorienting. Our rhythms have been thrown off. Life has gone upside down. And quite frankly, it's, it's a struggle for so many. 
It's a struggle because there's legitimate health concerns for many, but for many, it's not the health concerns that are keeping them away, even though that might be what we say. If we're honest, for many of us, it's we've become comfortable in an expression of faith that's disconnected from those deeds. But I don't want to focus on that alone, the deeds of fellowship and being with the body, even though that's incredibly important. And we're praying and hoping that every church sees a return of believers in fellowship because it's so vital. But I want to pose the question and ask you to reflect, what are some deeds that should accompany your faith, that you know the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, and you're realizing if you're honest during this season, those deeds have been disconnected from your faith. Those deeds will never save you. They will never make you righteous in the eyes of God. But your faith disconnected from those deeds, James says, is cause for concern. To have saving faith, to truly believe that Jesus alone could save us, the expression of that in our lives are deeds that accompany our faith. What deeds are Je- is Jesus calling you to practice, to walk in that should accompany your faith? Is there someone that, you're, that he's prodding your heart to love, to serve, that might be difficult for you to do? To forgive, to not speak ill of, that deed of honoring even people that are dishonoring, is that something that needs to accompany your faith? Maybe this is a season where Jesus is calling you to be generous with your time, your talent, your treasure in various ways. Is that something that you know he's calling you to add to your faith? Maybe he's calling you to deeper prayer. And that needs to be added to your faith, to study scripture, to serve in all its capacities. I don't know what he's convicting you on, but I know he's convicting me on so many levels of Your faith needs to have deeds to accompany it in order for it to be faith that's not dead. My prayer is, even now as we gather, that you and I would open up our hearts to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit to speak to us and cause our faith to come alive. If I could ask you, those that are gathered at Legal Outreach, where we gather on Sundays, if you could stand to your feet at this time, those that are watching at home, we're about to pray in just a moment. Could we bring our hearts and our posture to God and ask him to speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you come and speak and move and convict our hearts as only you can? We know deeds will not save us, but we now know faith without deeds is not saving faith. Lord, would you help us to add deeds to our faith, to add action to our faith, the kind of action you're calling us to. Would you meet us now as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.